Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is show number 311. The Respect Sextet play the theme music for this program. They have since the beginning. They are celebrating their 10th anniversary this year. If you go to respectsextet.bandcamp.com, you can enter the offer code TJS, the initials of the Jazz Session, to get 50% off any of their recordings. That's good through October 11th. And on that day, they're celebrating their 10th anniversary with a special show at Le Poisson Rouge in New York City. Tickets are now available. Check out respectsextet.com for details. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo. He's online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. And thanks to All About Jazz for carrying the show. You'll find episodes at allaboutjazz.com. And they also designed a widget for the jazz session, which you can install on your own website. And if you do that, let me know, because I will feature you in my newsletter. Many people have already done that, and it's just a cool way to let people know what's on the jazz session and a cool way for me to thank you for doing it. My guest today is Avram Pfeffer, a saxophone player. He played at Clemente Soto Velez, which I'm amazed I was able to remember the entire name of, which is a cultural center where the Evolving Music Series takes place on Mondays. And I saw him, I I was totally impressed when I saw him that night uh, playing with a trio and was very excited to talk to him about his record. And months later now, we're finally getting a chance to do it. So from his album, Iliahu, this is the opening track, Song for Dayani. guest is the composer and saxophonist Avram Pfeffer. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Joseph. It's a pleasure. I saw you uh, 
for I guess the one of the CD releases for this at uh, the Evolving Music Series, and was just so so blown away by the the trio that night, and I think maybe by most by the kind of sense of of joy that animates the music, and that really seemed to I thought come across in the room we were in, and comes across on this record. And I wonder if I could get you to react to to that to the effects of joy in your in your play. <laughs> That's a wow. That's it's it's an interesting idea. Um, uh, I mean, it's funny. Uh, I don't know whether to come from from the front to the back or the back to the front, but uh, <laughs> um, chronologically speaking. But um, the one thing I would say is uh, this particular record, which is my uh, tenth release as a leader, and you know, of course, like most horn players I have a lot of you know sideman things but uh, this record uh, was recorded last year 2010 and um, and yeah we recorded and and I've been trying over a, a period of time to, to find a way to bridge my various interests and influences as a musician and improviser and I've played a lot of African music and kind of Middle Eastern music, especially some kind of Moroccan, North African, and uh, and uh, West African music. And um, that's based on your time in Paris. Is that when that um, kind of started, or was it before then? Even I mean, it started. I guess Paris. There, there was some of that, but it's been primarily here because I've worked with okay. a lot of African groups here in in New York. Um, and I worked with a guy, Tony Allen, in in Paris. You know, who is a, a Fela drummer back in the day and uh but that was more his thing is more kind of afro pop or whatever you would call it afro beat um i play i tend to have an influence of a lot of indigenous musics so things with kora and balafon and mandang stuff from from uh from uh guinea and mali and stuff but i also have played uh, high life music and uh, music from Ghana and Senegal and a variety of places, South Africa. But, um, but the point is, when we did this record, I was trying to find and convey an intersection of my influences. I have an electric group that does kind of funk and more dance, kind of like if prime time was a little more of a commercial venture and the leader was less of a genius. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so, um, so when we did the record, I mean, it wasn't really an intentional thing, but, but I, I guess I'd gotten to a point in my own, um, musical evolution where I felt my abstract, th um, interests, my straight ahead jazz repertoire interests and the years and years of restaurant gigs and stuff and monk tunes and mingus tunes and, Duke Ellington tunes, and then all my original compositions, and then the strengths of Chad Taylor and Eric Rivas, who bring this incredible background and wealth of... I mean, I like to think we've cross-pollinated each other over the years, because we've played either together in various formations or different groups over 15 years since I've been in New York. Um, they're both people that were among the first musicians I worked with in New York City when I moved here. Um, and they're now highly sought after and work with different people, but they also bring in their own personalities um, 
this this wonderful kind of depth to the music. And so, but Eric is based in L.A. He's rarely here, and then he's also on tour so much, so we don't get to play that often. So there was a joy to see each other again. There was um, the repertoire involved. We happened to record the first piece was a piece by Chad written for John Diani, Johnny Diani, the, the bass player. So there's kind of an ebullient, you know, joyous quality to that. Um, and I listened back to the record. I said, wow, this is actually probably my happiest record. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it, I was kind of surprised when I listened back to it. And then what happened was, is we were getting ready to, you know, I was shopping it and getting into the, you know, pre-production phase. And then suddenly my father passed away last year. And he was, you know, a guy who was basically in incredible health, 72 years old, playing soccer three times a week. And, you know, just, you know, in kind of the, you know, real light of my life, kind of a real um, centerpiece to my existence, even though, you know, I haven't lived within closer than 3,000 miles of him for 20 years, but um, as a personality and an influence and a, uh, a uh, just as a man and a, a kind of a, 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 you know, representation of a type of approach to life and a survivor because he had just a very traumatic and dramatic uh, existence from early on, that when I dis when he passed away, I decided in honor of him, I'd dedicate the record to him. And I think a lot of people thought, okay, so it's going to be a sad dirge-like, you know, St. James Infirmary uh, type situation. But he was such a joyous, life-embracing person that I felt like it was a better statement to kind of, you know, the music was recorded before he passed, so it wasn't a response to his passing. Right. But I wanted to, you know, do a timely dedication. And also... Anytime you attach your music to something very close and personal, um, extra musical uh, topic, let's say, 
and especially if you have touring coming up and things like that, it fuels and ties together the music and the concept. It gives you guys, the, the musicians, something to focus on. Um, and, and for me personally, because it was such a loss and it was such a shock and a surprise, it was completely debilitating for me. So the music was um, really my way out. And so it really helped to kind of tie things together and create a positive response to the situation. I, I've been saying, you know, this is kind of a self-centered way of putting it, but it was like my personal 9-11 kind of thing. And you have to find a positive reaction, not the one that we did <laughs> for <Sure>. the last <laughs> 10 years. Um, but, uh, you know, something so... So yeah, the record and the the concert hopefully convey. I have to admit, I go through a lot of suffering performing this music, but a lot of that hopefully is the suffering to be joyous externally. You know, to to dig yeah. within, to to give something positive. Did associating this music with your father after the fact does it change the way? I, I mean, imagine the answer is yes, but the way you approach the music, the the emotional associations with the music. Yeah, I mean, for example, I mean, on a really superficial level, a couple of the pieces, I hadn't come up with titles yet. Right. And one of the pieces I had written, and then, and it's the title track, Eliyahu. And I was, um, very soon after uh, the the funeral, um, uh, nearly a year ago, because the anniversary's coming up here, which is kind of hard to believe, but... Um, I, you know, I, I actually have a lot of lyrics for my music. And one night I was listening to the, the, the tracks, trying to figure out the order of the music for the CD. And in listening to the piece that became Eliyahu, I ended up with lyrics for the song. And so, and it came out whole, and it was Eliyahu. Da -da -da. So it went with the music, and so I said, "Oh, that's so cool, you know." And I wrote it, and it, it was a little bit of a, you know, it's a sappy, sugary, whatever. I'm not a songwriter, and it's probably a, you know, uh, not not. Hopefully, the the music is better than than the song, and nobody's singing <laughs> on the record, so you don't have to worry. But it was a, uh, uh, so that's one thing. Then. Um, 
so a couple of the pieces, the titles, uh, Wishful Thinking and Eliyahu, the titles actually uh, came from that fact. Um, and then in performing, I have to admit on tour, and Chad and Eric unfortunately can attest to this, but, uh, you know, we had a tour in Europe, through Eastern Europe, and I had never been to certain areas. And on a uh, kind of Jewish historical level, on a family personal level, and then on the specific level of my own father, um, it was kind of a rough trip. It, it took us to some areas that uh, impacted me far more than I had expected. Mm. And uh, so then appearing in Lithuania in a town where my grandmother's entire you know, family had been slaughtered alive and stuff like that, and playing in an old synagogue with a bunch of kind of people screaming, we'll never forget kind of thing, you know, and in and, and this kind of power-packed emotional situation. I, I was falling apart in these performances, but the audiences were eating it up because, you know, you want to see an artist, I guess, involved in what they do. And so long as they're still giving 100% musically and backing it up with, with some music. And Chad and Eric just responded in incredible ways, like considering it was, you know, a little more removed for them. Um, sure. They just were, were really just... The music itself, you know, evolved over the course of the tour where there were moments where certain tunes that would seem like the happy tune became the sadder piece on another occasion or vice versa. Um, and... Uh, but yeah, you know, anytime a major event happens, I also got engaged this year, you know, and madly in love and all this stuff. So you have different emotions that are always come into play. Um, you know, I've had friends who, you know, despite all the ins the lack of sleep from having children, end up, you know, so fueled by that experience that, that the music always you know portrays that power expresses the kind sure. of what you're going through so yeah absolutely yeah. uh did you you mentioned obviously that when you listened back to this before uh your father passed away that you thought oh this is my happiest record yeah. uh and i wonder were, were there did you make intentional decisions about drawing on specific parts of your musical background uh, kind of track by track or did you find that it just kind of became a an amalgam of um, no, no, I, I found it. Um, and this is always one of the fun things is, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've heard from all your interviews with musicians and it's an interesting relationship between critics and reviewers and writers and stuff and journalists and the musicians themselves. And it's always interesting how sure some people are about something and they're completely wrong about the, the background about a CD sure. or, or what went into it. Um, this one, people have seemed to get from it pretty much the way I felt, which was kind of an organic, holistic approach that just brought together, um, to me, all the music just sounds like, um, you know, kind of... A, first of all, considering all the instruments I play, I didn't present that many of them. It's a very tenor-centric album. Um, the previous record we did, I had been going to ornettes a lot to play duos at that time on alto and so it reflected m more of my alto personality um this one has a little less of that um and none of the clarinet or bass clarinet stuff and then um so i i guess i i felt that it's more organic and i felt i guess conceptually 
I have kind of a modest approach to the idea of improvisation and what I'm doing, which is that I would never be so presumptuous to, to try to do something new or different or anything like that. It really doesn't concern me. I'm always most concerned with being more myself than ever before. And in that way, it will always be unique because nobody can be Avram Pfeffer better than me, hopefully, unless there's an identity <laughs> uh, theft that is really <laughs> extreme right. um, on a musical level. But, uh, but so, so I guess it was more tuning into that and finding a way that the three of us can present something that is, uh, you know, for the head, heart, and stomach, that, that isn't overly intellectual, uh, isn't overly, you know, unchallenging or unprovocative, but can be related to on different levels. And, and I guess that's the point is, is to find, a, you know, not to, you know, the word sexy is weird, but I just feel like jazz sometimes has really lost its sexiness. And uh, if it is, if the music and the musicians are themselves kind of attractive and deep and uh, have... Uh, something, you know, tribal and organic and physical at the heart of what they're doing, um, I think that helps um, even if the ideas are really strong as well, you know, that it doesn't develop in just kind of an esoteric or sure. cold conceptual way. I guess one of the things that struck me about this record was uh, particularly the rhythmic aspect, and it it sounds very intentional. I mean, it sounds more intentional than you just saying to Chad, "I want this kind of feel." It's a lot of this rhythmic, the rhythmic component of this record sounds. First of all, it's so integral to I think the success of the record, but it just sounds like there was more of a conception on your part than just ah, give me like a six eight feel. And so I, I was curious about how much of that you had kind of mapped out, or um, how much instruction you gave. Well, first of all, to players like these, you know, it's it's a touchy situation because as a composer, Chad wrote two of the pieces, so, sure. you know, I don't want to speak for him. I, I will say that um, Chad, uh, that, that you don't want to tell these guys, 
you don't want to rein them in too much. You want to, you, you want them to, you want to create a situation that uses the, the strengths and the depth and the love of those musicians, you know. Um, you don't want to clip their wings in any way. Sure. But, so the, I guess the idea is you play with people whose own vision and freedom uh, you know that the that the three streams of, of 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 musicality come in together to make more of a raging river kind of situation, um, and which is pretty the, much what everybody always says when I whenever I ask that question. But I think <laughs> to some degree, I think that shortcuts the fact that you actually wrote this music and you're the leader, and you obviously went in with some conception. I mean, of course, yeah, you hired yeah, yeah. these guys yeah, because yeah, yeah. of who yeah, they yeah. are, right? Yeah, yeah, you didn't yeah, just yeah, pick two yeah. guys from the union hall. I mean, you right. definitely got these guys for a reason. But you also went in knowing here's these are the tunes and this is the record I want to make to some to some degree. So I mean, I, sure, sure. I guess I'm curious about that kind of balance of guidance versus letting them right, fly right. free. Well, I will say that um, there's definitely for some of the grooves there's uh, there's no question that uh, there are certain feels that. You know, not to be negative, but there's certain feels you want to avoid. You know that that it's like it, it's like sometimes for me, not being a rhythm section player, it's easier for me to to nudge things away from something that I dislike than towards something I like. Sometimes sometimes it's harder to 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 find the language to describe what I'm looking for. But you know, if I hear something that I like or dislike, I can you know kind of sure. nudge a little bit. You know. Let let me see the CD so I actually have a uh, – if I look, it will trigger more of a – yeah, I mean, I would say just looking at this as as I think of the tune specifically and individually and the order and the whole thing, you know, there's there's the planning that goes into the actual recording and then there's the planning that goes into how you present <clears throat> what ended up happening. So I would say generally I was trying to present – I have a couple – ballads like Eliyahu and A Taste for Love that are meant to be fairly open and have a certain feel that avoid tipping too far in one direction or the other. Uh, some of the other grooves, there's meant to be, there's definitely meant to be these cross rhythms going on. So the two and three thing is very important. The fact of mixing the kind of jazz and African triplet feel is important to pieces like you know, for for Chad's piece, for uh, for uh, Essaouira, for uh, for uh, appropriated lands, for for these pieces, there's supposed to be something that uh, brings in these different influences. So it's definitely not like, hey, you guys, let's let's swing our asses off on this one. Right. You know, it's it's not like that. It's it's it is meant to to be uh, kind of centric in the way that it brings these different influences together. Um, the other thing is that it wasn't, you know, you could say it's, I don't know if it's good or bad, but, but there's, I have the most room to stretch out, I would say, over the record. And yet it's not meant to be, it's like using saxophone as a melodic voice to show off the rhythm section in a sense, you know, it's not, Hey, you guys sit still while I go nuts. You know, it's not something like that. Yeah. And so, there's a lot of places where the saxophone and the rhythm section are kind of delineating the rhythms 
together. I mean, it's oh, the saxophone absolutely. is almost part of the rhythm section. Yeah, absolutely. even if it's carrying a solo line or a melodic line at the same absolutely. time. Absolutely. Yeah. No. There, there's definitely, and it's humbling to be honest. Even if it's your own bass line, to be doubling a bass line with somebody like Eric <laughs> or a drum part with somebody like Chad, the nuance and the level of subtlety. You know, if you're not helping, then you're hurting. Right. You know, it's like <laughs> it's not the easiest thing in the world. You know, to suddenly after all those years of practicing saxophone to suddenly pretend you're a bass player or a drummer right. or something like that. But yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's an interesting question what you're saying. And I don't want to overstate the case because I have to be honest out of my 10 records, I, I, I would never want to imply that this was the one, this CD Eliyahu as my 10th recording somehow represented more planning than the other ones you know i could go through the different records probably my first record had the most planning of all my records because sure. it had been like inside me for a long time waiting to burst out and i had been working together steadily with a, that group at the time with the different drummer and eric um wonderful drummer egal phony and uh and so some of the other records and stuff i'd done with bobby few there was more thought ahead of time so i don't want to overstate the case you know in addressing your question right um you know i i know maybe you're you're looking to give a little more credit to the leader or or uh you know or understand the process of you know how much control but again i just for myself i have to admit um it's just creating kind of a certain framework and structure and hoping that the music itself and the way i play it says enough that words aren't really needed too much beyond that to elicit the responses and the support and the ultimate result that I'm looking for sure. from, from the other musicians. As you look over these ten records, do you see it as a as a linear evolution, or like more like a series of kind of snapshots of various aspects of your musical uh, personality? That's an interesting question. You know, I, I, in a weird way, I feel like this is my second record. 
In a weird way, this is the follow-up to my first record, Calling All Spirits. I've recorded for, let's see, the first record ended up uh, coming out on Cadence Records. I did a number of records with Bobby Few on Boxholder Records. I did a number of recordings up at uh, the Roosh studio up uh, Simp, C-I-M-P. Um, and uh, Clean Feed did uh, the trio uh, with Eric and Chad and I Ritual. two years ago. Um, that was called Ritual. So they had different situations. Um, a couple of the box holder things were, were documents of live recordings from festivals and things. Um, some of the situations with Simp, because of their recording process, I tend to use those as just kind of one-off showcases to try something um, and did a quartet with uh, Wilbur Morris and Steve Swell and did a quartet with uh, Thomas Ulrich and Ken Filiano and some things that, that were like trying situations and getting something out there and then seeing what happens, you know, more like, okay, do, do people respond? Does, do we end up getting work? And, you know, who knocks on what door? Rather than the, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to push and try to make stuff right. happen. So, uh, and then, of course, the record label, how much they do. That's always a huge <laughs> factor, or it used to be a factor. Now it's not even a factor anymore. Um, but, uh, so I would say there's somewhat snapshots, but they're also... Um, Hopefully my playing has evolved, certainly, but I would not at all say that there's some direct line. And in fact, I'm, you know, I'm constantly kind of juggling different ideas for my next project. Like I want to go into the studio and do a, you know, I've, as I said, I've done a lot of work with various African musicians over the years. And I'd like to go in and do something with Cora and Balafon, like a very simple, easy to listen to trio African um, jazz melange and then um, and then uh, I would like to do a uh, I'm going to be documenting I have a band called Avram's Electric Kool-Aid that plays at a club called New Blue a lot here in the city and that's with uh, a number of great musicians here in town playing a repertoire that was some of the pieces originally written 15, 16 years ago um, and that I've gotten close to recording at any number of moments but never have so that is likely to be recorded in the next six months or so um, I've got a producer for that and then I'll get that out which will be really nice and, and a side of my playing that probably a big part of the audience doesn't know about at all and then um, and then I'll also probably do a follow up with this trio and another tour and, um, and then I do a lot of work with the bass player Michael Bezio and I'm sure we'll do some more stuff together and, you know, so so I'm open to a lot of things. Yeah. And, uh...
Yeah, you seem like someone, uh, you just knowing what I know of your history and, and your present, who's always trying to put himself in kind of new and challenging musical situations. Is that a, a fair statement? Uh, yeah. Or you could say that I just find everything really challenging. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I, you know, that's the fun of the thing. I mean, you know, again, another side to the happiness factor you were talking about before, I really look at, um, you know, I think there are a lot of musicians out there who maybe felt that music was their one way to express themselves. And they really, uh, knew that from early on and I wasn't at all like that you know I was I was pre-med in school I was gonna I was very academic I I was kind of always taught to think of all my gifts lying in other areas and that music might help you also get into a good college to pursue those other areas or right. something you know and uh, and the fact that I fell in love and got bit by this jazz bug and this improvisation bug it was like a uh, like like a challenge for me, something that I never really expected to be able to do. And I was trying to just get it out of my system so I could get on with my life. And the battle with the art form itself, totally separate from, you know, I think of the art form and I think of the business, and they're two completely different things. Um, one is like capital M, one is like small m, you know, music. And... Uh, with capital M music, that battle between Avram and music, the art form, was so difficult for so long and so many years and so many hours of work that I think the joy of having gotten past that hump, not to say that music is easy for me or anything like that, but, you know, without hopefully jinxing myself in any way, I just feel like a constant access now that, that it's like being a deeply religious person um, that I'm ready to worship at any moment, you know, and I'm ready to rejoice and cry and put it all out there at any moment. And it's like all that struggle and fight was to get to a point where the music is kind of this just totally open, exposed, vulnerable, powerful uh, transmission of your own internal environment. And, uh, and so I think a lot of the, uh, the, the, the pleasure part, even, you know, in a, even in a dirge-like situation, comes from that, from the, the, you know, even looking around the world, it, it's like all hell's breaking loose, you know, and, and instead of music feeling more trivial, to me, music and vibration and the study of vibration and sound has become actually more fundamental than ever. And it's almost like the one thing that will be left when the dust rises after all this other crap going on. Um, because what we're doing is just so intrinsically powerful um, that... Uh, and I'm just happy to be a part of that, you know? Yeah. I, I've certainly yeah. ripped off this quote enough times that I don't even remember the attribution anymore, but someone said the thing about, you know, making art, making beauty at times like these is itself a revolutionary act, which I, I totally agree with. And I mean, I think it's, and I agree with what you just said, that it, it is more important than ever when it seems like so many things are arrayed against the creation of beauty and the, the reminder of our humanity. 
I think that's when music and other forms of art just rise to the fore. Yeah, I mean, if people are open to them, I mean, I think it's very, it's almost like a Rorschach or litmus test because you see a lot of people closing down when times get tough and a lot of people open up. And, you know, it, it's just, it's a constant learning process and life is so interesting in the sense of, um, you know, and and I'm the first one to, look, I, I there's no doubt that I'm probably in one of my, <laughs> not that people who know me know that I tend to, you know, think big picture probably too much and extrapolate and all that. But but I'm I'm in a you know a, a a grandiose moment in the sense of when you lose a parent like all of us have gone through, or probably people, um, you know, and hopefully I'll go through the the parenting thing as well. But uh, you know, you go through those personal moments, and then they teach you about the world and vice versa. And um, I mean, we all know what we're capable of, both in the good and the bad, individually, as societies, as civilizations, as races, as cultures, um, all this stuff in science, mm -hmm. um, you know, that things can be used in, you know, all sorts of different ways. And how we react in these situations says a lot about where we're at. And um, and the arts, I think, one of the great things about the arts is it keeps you in this constant relationship between your internal and your external balance and trying to understand that relationship and also between the past, the present, and the future and understand um, when freedom is dedication to the tradition and when freedom is letting go of the tradition and when, you know, you've got to respect things and hold them hold fast to them and when you want to challenge them and let go of them and look for cracks in the foundations and um it's it's just it's a constant learning process and uh if you're addicted to learning like I am it's it's a it's just a wonderful thing just to be able to survive long enough to keep going through these travails and and tribulations and opportunities for for growth or yeah you know, or, or losing ground or whatever it might be, you know, in the, in the moment. But, uh, certainly artists have an outlet that a lot of other people don't have. And maybe that helps us be less fearful and less blindly afraid of certain things that a lot of other people seem to be manipulated through that fear because they don't have outlets to express their own kind of life force that, that helps keep those things in balance.
when you look back, can you can you point to something that caused you to want to engage in this battle with music and decide to really focus your life on this as opposed to, for example, medicine or the other things that you were interested in? Um, yeah, I mean, those things, you know, they're, they're personal and, and they're, um, they're long stories. I, I was a very sick kid. I was an asthmatic kid. I was in the hospital a lot. I was a small kid. My father had been born and he was born in a labor camp in Siberia uh, without his father. He spent his first seven years there. He was an immigrant to the United States, you know, without speaking the language. We came from this kind of that kind of survivor uh, mentality. And I think on the one hand, when somebody, my big thing was somebody turned me on to Stanley Turrentine in high school. And that was a huge, huge revelation. There was something about those CTI records and Stanley Turrentine. I had posters of him all over my wall. I was just like, I couldn't get enough of that sound, you know. I always wanted to, I always imagined like diving into the bell of his horn and like living there, you know, and, uh, and like swimming around, you know, and, uh, so, uh, so there was that initial love of the music and then tying into my own kind of background, there was that sense of like wanting to stake your own claim to a pursuit, you know, like, like my father did it in science. And even though that's all I knew and I was headed in that direction, once I was old enough, 18, 19, 20, to realize, look, you know, it's really about fighting your own fight. You know, it's not about like, okay, I'm naturally good at this, so I'll just go with that. Um, it's like, oh, man, he was up against so much. How the hell am I going to create a fight that might seem of equal uh, value if I was successful, you know, right. and not to equate, you know, being a jazz musician with like surviving a surviving labor a camp, labor and camp yeah. in Saber in Siberia or something. <laughs> but I'm just saying in my world, finding a battle that, that, that was worthy of a life, you know. And so as I got into that, I started practicing. And in those days, you know, in college, we were doing drugs and we were doing all that stuff. And I had never imagined doing drugs or anything like that. And I was exploring literature and poetry and, and music and friendships and you know totally in love with some amazing woman and and this and I was practicing and, and I used to practice in the ATM you know they have those out like like at the bank they have the uh, you know the little uh, like on the street you can put your card in and go in and get money right. I used to practice in those things all night long in Boston um, and so I'd be out there practicing and one night I was playing like my favorite things or something and I went into kind of a trance and I was just playing for hours and when I was done I remember you know having disappeared and 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 the process of returning to my body was such a bizarre feeling of coming back and the 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 and it was kind of there was a lot of disappointment I have to admit with returning to to to, to earth or whatever it was in my moment but there was something afterwards that I reflected on, which was a uh, a sense of uh, kind of devotional aspect and uh, an aspect that reflects yourself. That that it's like if you want to learn, art is like the perfect mirror of yourself. And so, even though you know 
that's a very dangerous proposition because we are ugly people, you know? <laughs> it's like, you know, we got a lot of ugly stuff going on, but there's all this other stuff. And if you can really just go into all those corners and nooks and crannies and get it all out there and squeeze it and use it and get all the colors of the palette and the quiet stuff and the loud stuff and the and the fast and the slow and the, you know, the juicy and the dry and the just all the things... Um, that just that sense of kind of almost a, in a devotional pursuit, um, you know, the, balanced by the fact that playing and listening were almost equally pleasurable, you know, the, the fact that you can enjoy other people's work almost as much or more than your own, you know, playing is great, but I still love listening. I can't get enough of listening to other people, like constantly. Hearing my friends is like just a constant source of pleasure. And are you are you searching for more moments like you had that night? Um, well, it's different. You know, it's a funny thing. It's like anything. You can never go back to that first experience. And in one way, you up your game so that you're always kind of living on that level. And, you know, to be, you know, more on a, a personal level, not just music. You know, you're trying to get your life so that somehow laundry feels like a, the bridge of a ballad, you know, or something, right. you know, that, that you're existing on a level. We all know how tough that is, especially in New York. New York's almost, to me, the antithesis. The, a lot of the qualities you need to develop a, a survival mechanism in New York are an antithetical to what it takes to be a good human being and what it takes to be a good artist, despite the fact that it can also you know, challenge you to become a stronger, more determined and, and thoughtful and dedicated artist and human being. Um, but I would say that uh, I've had many, many, many moments like that in my life um, all over the place. Um, I've had them, you know, I play outside a lot. I play all over the world. You know, when I'm on tour, we might have a great concert, but I might still go sit by a river or on a mountain or by a train station or something and play by myself. I might have really strong connective experiences or, you know, whatever type of experiences without categorizing them, um, even alone, even off the bandstand, but certainly with great musicians and playing great music. You just touch these moments. I mean, I, for example, one thing I can say, like, like, like on the tour in, in, in June, you know, I was listening back to some things in this trio with Eric and Chad, and I'm listening, and I'm going, I know Chad's playing the drums, but I feel like I was playing the drums. Because it was, like, so intuitive that it was scary, like, the way it makes me feel when I listen back, when... You know, when people send me, you know, videos from the tour and stuff, and I'm going, God damn, I didn't remember it like that or something. You know, it's like you listen, you go, that, that people can listen that closely is just such a wonderful thing. Um, and so obviously, whatever I was experiencing at that time, some of the power way back when in that bank machine situation came from my own naivete and lack of understanding and learning. And so, you know, you could almost have a more powerful experience by knowing less because you're holding yourself accountable a little less. And it takes more and more to, you know, what, you know, listening is, I mean, that's the beauty of it. It's like 
people don't understand most of the public does not understand the level of listening that goes on by musicians and they just don't understand that just like for an artist you know their red doesn't exist there's a hundred kinds of red and they see every one of those shades and they're like night and day for them and you know when you the longer you play and the more you share those moments with other musicians to exist in those tiny little subtle moments that you've created that that those are those things you know when you laugh at a, a show you know that's the thing that's what you're getting you're laughing because you're tuned into something that is so ultimately human that nobody else will ever get to because it's like these private jokes or pleasure centers that we're tapping into that are like oh my god did you hear that <laughs> shit you know it's like you know and and it could be like he just referred to something from you know miles 1968 stockholm you know something you know it's it's like oh god you know or i mean it just you never know and so those it's hard to make a total equivalency you know between the experience now and then but but there's no question that you know overall it's just more and more fun all the time and you know i mean you have those bad moments but there's so much less doubt than there was at the beginning you know yeah well that's a beautiful place to leave it my guest is avram pfeffer the new album is eliyahu and it's been a pleasure to talk to you about it thanks very much my pleasure jason Oh,
That's music from saxophonist Avram Pfeffer and his album Eliyahu. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Please do become a member if you like what you hear. You can do that very inexpensively at thejazzsession.com slash join. You can start for as little as 10 bucks a month. If you want to pay for it all in one big yearly sum, you can do that for $110 a year. And there are levels above that. At the $50 a month or $500 a year levels, you can become an official sponsor of the show and be mentioned on every single episode. And now, if you would, please get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.